All right, now, for those of you who drove up and said, well, I thought we were done with that Fruits of the Spirit sermon. You're right, we are. Um, I'm carrying the sign around in the back of my car. I haven't put it up yet. But we are starting a new series today um, on the book of Acts. This is something I've been wanting to do for some time. And um, I kind of put it off uh, just because it just didn't feel right, and this kind of feels more like it now. We are... um, we're in a, in a transitional period. I've, I started saying that in January. I, I still believe it. I, I believe I'm seeing some signs of it already. We're in a transitional period as a church. We've been around for four years now. We're in our fifth year uh, in November, which isn't that far away. Uh, it'll be our fifth year anniversary. So at that moment, I think we're really doing a very big pivot, um, and we're still praying about that. Please continue to keep praying about that, but I think we're going to be moving and I think we're going to be starting a new, a new home and a new part of the new phase of the ministry. Same ministry, but a new phase. And so um, I've been kind of hinting around about this for some time because it's like, it, it seems to me that at some point you have to, you know, you're four or five years old, it's kind of start asking yourself, when are you going to grow up? And, and also, what are you going to be when you grow up would be the next question. I don't know if you guys can read that, but they asked this little girl, what do you want to be? when you grow up and she said, I've peaked. Let's hope not. Let's hope we haven't peaked already. Let's hope we have a big, big stretch of growth in front of us. But what do we want to be as we grow up as a church? And, and where do we want to head with this? And it was early on in the, the life of this church where I had this vision and I had all these books and I had all these plans on how we're going to run this church. And God pre pretty firmly told me we weren't doing that. And so I said, okay, well, we're not doing that. But that kind of left a big, well, now what? I know what I'm not doing. What am I doing? What is it going to look like? And, and I think the book of Acts is kind of where the answer to that question is. Um, and it, the book of Acts is a little bit of a controversial book, which is weird to say, but it is. Not that anybody disagrees that it should be in the Bible or anything like that, but there seems to be two lines of thought about the book of Acts. And one of the largest denominations in the country, the Southern Baptist, who's very prominent and very influential in Christianity, uh, has taken a stance that the book of Acts is a historical book that shows how God moved in the early days of the church. And it's there as inspiration for us, but it's not there as a model for us because the Holy Spirit that we will see move in the book of Acts doesn't move that way anymore. And that's the way it was supposed to be according to their theology. Uh, then there's the other side that says, no, we should be seeing exactly the same kind of miracles in our lives today that they saw in the book of Acts. The, you know, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed why should we see a difference? I'm not interested in taking sides, but I am interested in t- taking a look at the, the, the church that's described that emerges in the book of Acts that was done by the people who knew Jesus best and say, what can we learn as a church from there? And also, what do we learn as people from there? Because, you know, the church is made up of people. Uh, if you remember that from Sunday school, you know, the church is made of the people. So anyway, uh, that's where we're going. We're going to be gone this week as a very uh, strange subject matter. But before we get to today's sermon from Acts, and we'll be moving through the book. I don't know how long this is going to take, by the way. I have no idea. God didn't tell me. So we're just going to work through it systematically until we get tired of it and switch to a different series. But um, it, let, let me, before we start there, let me do a little kind of imagination game with you. This is kind of what you used to do in kindergarten, you know. So let's play with our imagination for a minute. Uh, although in kindergarten, usually afterwards, you got graham crackers and Kool-Aid, and it's not really good for churches anymore to hand out Kool-Aid. Um, 
That was kind of dark. Sorry for those three of you who got that. Um, so, so we're not, so okay. That was okay. Okay, I didn't know if I went too dark on that one. Uh, but so we're not handing out Kool-Aid or graham crackers, but we are going to have a little tiny, it'll, it'll kind of imagination stretch here. So imagine that I told you right now that next week we're going to have a guest speaker, a special speaker. You're really going to want to hear this one. Make sure you get plenty of rest and come here because next week for one night only, uh, Jesus Christ is going to be here at Spirit Chapel. In, this, in the pulpit. He's going to do a sermon. I have a small question and answer session afterwards and then a healing session. So feel free to bring all the people who are lame and lepers with you. And we'll have a healing session too. Now, I understand that if I really said that, it'd be time to call 911 and have me committed. But I, I get that. But suppose we went beyond that. We're using our imagination here. And you believe me. What would your week be like realizing that Sunday morning at 10 a.m., you're going to walk through these doors and Jesus Christ would be here in person, in the flesh, ready to preach and teach. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure my excitement level is kind of through the roof at that point. It's a little nervous, you know, a little bit nervous. You know, what do you, do you offer Jesus coffee? You know, there'd be questions that I would have, but, um, you know, where, where, where would we go after that? It was just like, I'd just be excited. I wouldn't care. You know, whatever you want, Jesus, you know, he preached for like eight hours in the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead, you know, Spirit Chapel can take it. You know, we preach, go, don't stop, don't stop. And so I'd be very, very excited. I think most Christians would be, you know, but suppose he walked through the doors and instead of Jesus Christ sitting here, I'm standing here and they're oh, him again. And uh, I said, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. First, the bad news, Jesus Christ couldn't make it here in person this morning, but he sent a guest speaker in his place. So this is a hand-picked speaker from Jesus Christ that he sent to represent him. Uh, so today, instead of having Jesus Christ, we're going to have the Holy Spirit. Come on, can we be honest that basically the excitement meter kind of falls off at that point? Because I think most Christians go, meh, Holy Spirit, you know seen him before. <laughs> I don't know. Because I, I just really get a sense that if I told you, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to be here next week, it wouldn't move the needle at all. If I told you Jesus was going to be here, I think it would. But I don't know that moving the Holy Spirit would. But here's the thing. Jesus kind of said this very thing to his disciples. So shortly before he's crucified, he's kind of warning them of the things that are coming. And he's saying, I'm going to have to go away. And they're like, man, why would you go away? This is great. This is perfect. They have just had their triumphal entry, you know, into Jerusalem. The people are really embracing Jesus. The, the ministry is really taken off. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, well, I'm going to be leaving. And they said, why? And he says, no, look, it's good that I'm going to. He says this in John 16. Look, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. In other words, I'm going to tell you things you can't even understand, but the Holy Spirit will help you understand it in time. He's saying it's the best thing that can happen for you if I leave, so Jesus Christ, the person leaves, and the Holy Spirit replaces him. In other words, let me put it this way. He's saying it is better to have the Holy Spirit in you than Jesus Christ beside you. And I don't know how many Christians honestly believe that. I mean, I really don't. Because I think if I gave most people a choice between the Holy Spirit in you or Jesus beside you, we'd pick Jesus beside us. But Jesus himself saying, no, it's better if I send the Holy Spirit. That tells me one of three things has to be true. You know, when I, when I hear that, when I read that, and I kind of feel, and listen, when I say most Christians, I'm including myself in that group, you know, and so I'm like, there's got to be one of three things that's true here. Either A, Jesus is kind of telling his disciples a white lie because he wants to let them down easy, you know, it's not really completely true, but it's kind of true, and you know, he wants to let them down, but we don't believe Jesus did that, so rule that one out. 
Number two, and this is what the Southern Baptists believe, um, he wasn't speaking to us, he was speaking specifically to them. It is better for you, Peter. It is better for you, John. It is better for you, James, if the Holy Spirit is in you and that I'm beside you. Because you've got a lot of work to do and the Holy Spirit will help you to do it. And that was just for you. And this doesn't mean us. He's not talking to us here. All right, that's kind of what a lot of people, a lot of Christians believe. Or, number three, we just don't know the Holy Spirit the way Jesus knows the Holy Spirit. And we don't have a relationship with this person. He's a person of the Trinity. You know, we say, you know, God, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I think most churches kind of believe God, Son, and Holy Bible. You know, I don't know if they really believe in the Holy Spirit that way. You know, and so, you know, we just don't have the relationship that Jesus is hinting that we need to have. And that's what I'm kind of hoping comes out in the book of Acts. You don't see they have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that we just don't have. So let's, take a, let's pick up where we are. Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead. Uh, it, it was the worst week and the best week of the disciples' life. This has to be the biggest emotional roller coaster anybody's ever gone through. It starts with a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And you have to understand the times. I don't know if you guys have ever done any history and things study, but the Roman government invented something called the triumph. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But all the Caesars and stuff, when they come back, and when people who wanted to be Caesar would come back after like having been out and beating up the, the nomadic Germans or something, they'd come back and they'd throw themselves this thing called a triumph, which is basically a ticker tape parade. And they'd like make up coins and throw to the crowd so they would come because they wanted the crowd there. They would spend a lot of money setting this up to make it look like all of Rome was embracing this person. Julius Caesar did it very famously. And now, oh, wow, Julius Caesar is an up and coming you know, look at him. He's like, the, everybody wants him. Everybody likes him. And that's how he was able to step in and become the dictator for life, well, which didn't last his, his life as long as he thought it'd be. But that's how he's able to step into that because he had this triumph. What happened when Jerusalem uh, opened up their hearts to Jesus and he came in was they, that just simply happened organically. You know, no one planned it. No one, no human planned it. And yet all of a sudden, everybody's rushing and the children calling Hosanna, Hosanna, God with us. And they're, they're throwing things at Jesus. You know, it's like it just organically became this thing that Roman government fights and pays to try to get. And so when he walked through there, that, that, and with that, that's when the Jerusalem you know, powers of be, that's when the, the Jews in the temple got scared because they were taught that when the people embrace them like this, they're moving up in power. And that's why they got very, very afraid of Jesus. And that's why we went for this high, high, high of Palm Sunday to not very long after that, of course, the low, low, low of Black Friday. And that's part of the reason they were able to convince Rome that he was going to be a rebellion leader and was going to lead an insurrection against Caesar. And that's what they accused him of, and that's what they crucified him for. Okay, so we have a high, 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 and then we have the lowest of lows. Now, we've lost some loved people in our lives, and loved ones, losing loved ones hurts but we can't imagine what happened to the disciples. Now, they were only with him for three years, but Jesus knew them better than anybody. They connected at a level with Jesus that was just more and deeper than anybody's ever connected with them before. He was like, all these things matched into one. He was like a father figure, a brother, a friend, a teacher. He was all these things to them. He had a very, very deep connection with each one of those men, and they lost him. So they were dealing with the grief of that. And on top of that, they lost him in a horrible way. They had to watch him publicly humiliated and tortured and murdered before their eyes. And we've never gone through anything like that. We've never seen anything like that. And on top of that, there's this fear factor. Because when Rome decided that person is leading a rebellion, they not only killed him, they killed all of his lieutenants too. So it's not at all a stretch to, to, to imagine that the disciples at this point are a little bit afraid of what's going to happen to them. That's why they're not in Jerusalem anymore. 
That's where the power center is. So that's what happens. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes back again. This is like, you know, we're going for the high to the low, to an amazing high. They buried him. They saw him in a tomb, and now he's back. This is incredible. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 1. Now, we named the books. You need to know this. We named the books. The books weren't named by the writers. They didn't know they were writing the Bible. So Luke, the guy who writes this, is a doctor, and he's a, he's a Christian. He's a Gentile who becomes a Christian. But he doesn't see this as a separate book. He sees volume one and volume two. The first book he wrote, we call the Gospel according to Luke, but he didn't. He just liked Jesus, volume one. And this he sees as Jesus, volume two. And he's writing back to this guy named Theophilus. Now, no one knows who that is. That, that literally translates to lover of God. So it could just be a generic kind of greeting. I believe it's code. Because by the time this got published, the church was in persecution. You know, so I think he's writing to somebody saying, you know who you are, lover of God, but you didn't want to name names, you know, in case the Rome, Roman Empire came down that guy's doorstep. But we don't really know who he is. But he's basically saying, look, I finished that last book, if you remember what I wrote there. I'm going to pick up now where I left off. So this is a continuation. This is Jesus continued, Jesus part two, as far as he's concerned. He said, uh, this is all up until the day when he was finally taking back. Uh, so he came back to the apostles and he spent 40 days speaking of all the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there's this time after the resurrection and before what we're going to pick up in Acts 1 that passed that there's like nothing written about. Unfortunately, because apparently it was amazing. In, the chat, in, in John, the very last part of John, he says, he said so much stuff, if we had written that down, it would fill up all the books in the library. I'm thinking, John, could you have tried? Because you know, it seems like there's something there that maybe we could hear. And I really believe Jesus sat down and kind of, because he kind of spoke a bit in riddles and, and, and different illustrations when he was with them because that was necessary as part of what the Messiah was doing. He wanted to give us stuff we have to dig into because that makes you value it more, you know, if you really work for it. So he deliberately gave it to him that way. But I think for those 40 days, he just laid it out. He's like, yep, I'll answer all your questions. He explained everything. He explained why the devil's there. He explained why mosquitoes are here. I mean, I think he just explained everything, maybe even stink bugs. Maybe he explained even that to the disciples. Every question they had was, were answered. And he also kind of laid out what was going to happen in, in the upcoming days and how they were going to start the church. So he answered all these things. He spent his amazing 40 days. And so then when it was all done, he says, okay, I'm going to go back, but you have to go now to Jerusalem. This is the worst place to go, by the way. He's sending them to the worst place to go because that's what they're looking for. They said, go to Jerusalem and wait because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And that's okay. Not many days from now. He doesn't tell them when, but not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's coming. Not many. How many is not many? I don't know. Jesus has said not many. So it won't be long, but you've got to go to Jerusalem and wait for me there. And they said, well, is this when you're going to restore Israel? He says, you don't need to know that. What you need to know is I've told you to go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Not out here where we are right now. No one knows where they were. They're probably on a beach somewhere. It must have been the greatest 40 days of the disciples' life. They don't have to go anywhere, <laughs> just hang out with Jesus. He says, but don't worry. You're going you're to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the earth. He's actually telling them he's going to go to the Gentiles there too. They missed it at first. And when he spoke of these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So he's like, he just goes to heaven. And they're staring that, at that 
with their mouths hanging open because they watched Jesus just ascend back into heaven. And he wasn't just a spirit. He was a body, right, because he could touch him. He was real. And they was watching up in heaven like, I didn't see anything like this. Mouths hanging open. And they just keep staying there. So finally, God sends two angels to prod them. I said, guys, why do you keep watching the sky? He, he, he left. You know, he came, he'll come back, but he left. He told you to go to Jerusalem. Go. Go, go on to Jerusalem now. He goes, don't just stand there watching the sky. Go to Jerusalem. And so they all gather up and they go to Jerusalem. Now, they are a little nervous. I mean, they're hyped up, of course, you know, all this time of Jesus. But it's got to be a little nervous because, listen, if Ocean's Eleven taught us anything, the movie, not, not that there's a book called Ocean's Eleven, chapter 11, the, the, the movie Ocean's Eleven is when you're done with the heist, you split up and you go away separate ways, right? You don't all hang out together because it's easier for people to find you that way. So why criminals always split up, you know? And so if, if everybody's looking for these 11 disciples, it makes sense to split up. You know, you go to Judea, I'll go to Galilee, you go all the way up to Antioch, whatever. And we'll get back together. In a, no, no, instead, they're all gathering together. And in fact, they gather up all the believers who are left, and there aren't many of them, considering there are thousands who were following him at one time. There's only about 120 left. And they all go to Jerusalem. Well, it's hard to hide 120 people. They're all hanging out there, and it was going to come in not many days. And every day feels like a week, maybe even a month. Because at any moment, that sandal shuffle they heard outside the door could be the first part of a Roman patrol who discovers them, and it's over. Like the entire church is wiped out right there. Every believer in the world is right there. And they have to be worried about that because that's how Rome responds to rebellion. And Jesus was crucified because he was supposedly leading a rebellion. So they're hanging out here in what we call now the upper room, and they're waiting, and they're getting a little nervous, I think. I, I would think that would get on your nerves after a while. You know, just having 120 people you know, living together like that just got to get on your nerves after a while. It's not like you, you know, <laughs> they're Christians. They can't love everybody, right? Oh, they do, but you know what I mean. They get it after a while. I love my family, but they come and stay for seven days. You know, fish and family after seven days starts to stink, right? So 120 people, you got to figure, they're there, right? And, and, and it lists them all, and all the disciples were there, about 120 of them. And after a few days go by, Peter stands up. Now, I don't know if this was Peter's idea or they just simply elected him spokesman, but they're sitting here and you must start wondering, Jesus said not many days. He said not many days. And so we're sitting here, we're praying, and many days have passed. Where's the Holy Spirit? See, I, I can't prove that this is what's happening, but it feels like it's what's happening to me. They're like, there must be a reason the Holy Spirit hasn't come. Jesus said not many days. It's been many days. Holy Spirit's not here. What's going on? And I think they kind of looked around, well, what could it be? You know, pray, is it sin in the camp? No. What's going on? God's not saying anything. He simply said, go and wait. He didn't say, go and wait and do. He just said, go wait. And they're like starting to get a little nervous. It's been many days, no Holy Spirit, what's going on? And so Peter stands up and says, well, here's what we believe is going on. There used to be 12 apostles. Now there's only 11 because we had Judas and he's gone. It might be the Holy Spirit's not coming because we don't have 12 apostles. So what we're going to do is we're going to elect a 12th apostle. So we'll have all 12. You know, it's like those movies where you wait for the starship to come back and you need, that th you need every signpost up so it can light the way. So light, you know, that's kind of what it is. Like the Holy Spirit can't find us because we don't have 12. We need 12. We need the 12th. Let's go find the 12th. So... Um, the, anyway, so it's a, they, they, they come up with a filter because there's 120 people there. How do you choose? Well, this person should have been with us from the beginning. 
all the time, starting with the baptism, which is really funny because Matthew wasn't there at the baptism, so he wouldn't have qualified, right? But we need to, we have to have been there from the beginning, a man, of course, and uh, have to have been through us. And, and by the way, a lot of people deserted, so this is, believe it or not, by the time you're done filtering it all out, they actually have two people left. So after all that, they end up with two people that fit that qualification. We have a guy named Justice, and we have Matthias. Okay, so this is kind of cool because we're going to watch the disciples make a choice between two equal decisions. Because, you know, that's the thing about life. When you become an adult, you realize it's not black and white, it's shades of gray. That's what makes life hard. It's easy to choose between black and white, but how many times are you choosing between gray and gray? And you try to figure out which shade's darker or lighter. That's kind of life, right? That's where, that's where you really struggle with your decisions. And I'm not sure, they both look good to me. Which one should I do? I've had those decisions many times in my life. And so it's great to see the disciples because they just came from 40 days with Jesus. Now, that three years, but then the last 40 days was intensive training. These are the most righteous men on the planet. They know how to answer this question that dogs us, how do you choose between two shades of gray? So I can't wait to see how they choose. So they all are going to look at that, and, they, and they, so they pray. Okay, that's good. We all are going to start praying. So we have a choice of two, two things. This is what you would do. You pray, oh, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which, Jesus, but, but from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might come into his own place. Oh, Lord, you know the heart of all men. We need a 12th apostle. Help us, Lord. Tell us which of these men you would like to see become the next apostle. How, 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 how did they do that? How do they determine God's speaking to them? Did they sit there and listen? Did they pray? Did they fast? Did they pray? What did these righteous 11 men who've just spent 40 days with Jesus do to choose between these two things? Well, it might surprise you. They threw dice. I don't make this stuff up. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. Okay, Peter needs a new pair of sandals. Boom, you know? And it falls to Matthias. I read that, thought, are you kidding me? Am I allowed to do that? Because I got dice, you know? Do I need holy dice? Maybe Spirit Chapel can, can you know, sell holy lots or something and you make some money on this. You know, here's how you answer all your questions. Just take your dice and roll it, you know? And I'm, I'm not trying to make, you know, a big game, but it's pretty funny. They roll dice and yeah, okay. Matthias is the guy. Here we go. Uh, that's wonderful. Now we have Matthias. He's appointed as apostle. And guess what happens next? Nothing happens next. They go on waiting. All right. So um, we're going to get into what happens after all this later, but I want to stop here and I want to take a look at this Matthias matter and, and I want to see what can we learn from this, right? Uh, I think that uh, first and foremost, I'm not trying to mock the apostles. I know sometimes I, I come off that way. I would have probably done the same thing or worse. You know, it get, you get nervous. You're waiting on the Lord. You don't hear him. You want to do something, you know. Let me do something. Let me do something. Even if it's wrong, let me just do something. I got to do something. And Peter's not the kind of guy to sit and wait. You know, he, we know that. So we can understand why, why this is going to happen. But we have to take an honest look at what's going on. I think it's pretty obvious to say that Matthias, picking him as the 12th apostle, was wrong. 
I mean, I know, you know, I'm, I'm saying the apostles were wrong, but I think they were here. This is pre-Holy Spirit, and I think they made a mistake. And I'll tell you why, uh, moving forward. First of all, let me just say this. Uh, Matthias' name appears three times in Scripture, and we've already seen them all. From here till Revelation, you'll never hear his name mentioned again. That's probably not a pivotal choice then. Probably not. You know, you hear about the other people. Uh, no books written by him. And I think Matthias is probably a great guy. I mean, he was with them from the beginning. He didn't leave Jesus. I'm not saying he was a bad Christian. He probably was involved in a church and, and a wonderful person. But to call him the 12th apostle, I think, is a stretch. I don't think he was supposed to be the, the 12th apostle. Here's the thing that really kind of blows my mind as I was kind of going back and listening and reading. Um, Jesus has just spent 40 days with them. I think we can all agree Jesus can count to 12. I'm pretty sure Jesus can count to 12. And when they're sitting around the campfire and he's feeding them fish, I don't think he's going, hey, where's Judas? I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm 11. I, I think Jesus knew there was an apostle missing, is what I'm trying to tell you. And he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And if they needed to have 12 apostles in order to do that, I think Jesus might have mentioned that sometime in that 40 days. Oh, by the way, when you go there, roll some dice and pick an apostle. I think he would have told them. I, don't, I think it's also clear he didn't because they didn't start there, right? So I think that right there, I think we can know that that's not it. So why are they so focused on this? What came to their mind? Why were they doing this? They're doing something I think every church does, including this church, is sometimes we put structure ahead of the Spirit. But it is the Spirit, not the structure, that builds the church. And this is a lesson that not only has been a hard lesson for me to learn, I still chomp at the bit against it sometimes. Because in my mind, when we start Spirit Chapel, there was a structure I thought that needed to be in place for a church, and we just flat out didn't have the people to do that structure. And it really bothered me for a long time. In fact, I almost didn't open the church because of it. I think I've told this story before, but when I, we were first starting out, I would talk to any preacher who would talk to me. Well, one of the guys I reached out to is Tim Bergen, who's up at the Christian Center in Belvern. And I actually know Tim. He graduated a year ahead of me in high school. And so I reached out to him and said, hey, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, you know, it sounds great. So we went up, he bought me lunch and up in Belverne, and we were sitting there talking, and it was nice catching up on old times. But that's not really why I was there, right? Because one of the reasons I was there, and I, I, meant, I went to all these preachers and all these churches nearby, <laughs> is that we were poor <laughs> as a church. We didn't have a lot of things. We didn't have certain people that we needed. Um, we didn't have any place for you guys to sit when we first, first had this idea for a church. We kind of had the building sort of reserved. We hadn't signed the paperwork yet. Uh, but we could use a lot of things. Audio equipment, we didn't have any of that. You know, so we like all this stuff we kind of needed, we didn't have the money for. And so I was kind of hoping that when I'd meet with all these pastors, you know, they would have a heart for us and say, oh, hey, you know, we have these chairs we don't use anymore in our youth group. Would you like them? Or something like that. Not one of them did. Now, to be fair, I never asked. That's because that was back when I, before I became a pastor and I still had pride. Today I'd ask. I got no pride at all. I mean, I'll ask anybody for anything. <laughs> I have no pride. But at that time, I just kept waiting for them to offer. And I would jump on and say, yes, hallelujah. And they never did, including Tim. Uh, so we're driving away, and I was a little bit disappointed because I didn't get anything I really came for. But I asked the question that really was troubling me. I said, hey, I've got a question for you, Tim. I have this vision for a church, and it's kind of a complicated vision, but it's going to take people to pull off. I don't have the people. I have a place, I kind of have an idea, but I don't have the people. Do you think that God calls you to something like this and tells you to wait for the people before you move on? Or do you think God calls you expecting you to move on and the people will join? And we're driving back at this point, and Tim goes quiet. 
Now, not for like five minutes quiet, for probably like 30 seconds. But when you're driving and having a conversation, suddenly one person stops talking for 30 seconds. That's a long silence. And after a while, he finally says, well, uh, I, I'm sorry I was quiet. I was praying. I was praying uh, because what you ask is a good question. And I was praying to see if God would give me an answer for you, and he didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Join the club. Hasn't given me that answer either. He said, but let me just give you a knee-jerk reaction. Because as soon as you asked that question, I had this knee-jerk reaction. Uh, but I think it's just because I've been doing this Bible study, you know, in my own quiet time. And I think it's coming from that. So I didn't want to just say it. But let me throw it out for whatever it's worth. I said, okay. He said, I would say the answer to you is the same thing that he told Moses. Now, that probably doesn't make sense, but it did. Because as soon as he spoke those words, Exodus 4, 1 through 3 jumped in my head. I knew exactly where he was going. It was really, really cool. Because I knew exactly what he was about to say. When Moses is before God and God's sending him back to Israel, he's not worried that Pharaoh's not going to believe him. He doesn't think the Israelites are going to believe him. You know, forget Pharaoh. The Israelites are not going to take him. And so uh, it says, I don't think anybody's going to listen to me or my voice, he says. I don't think they're going to listen to me at all. And God says this, what is in your hand? One of the coolest questions in the Bible. Because it has nothing to do with what Moses is talking about. And the few times God's spoken to me, that's exactly how he operates. It's like you're praying about this, and he asks you this. What's in your hand? He says, a shepherd's staff. He says, throw it down. And there's a bunch of symbolism here. But just at that moment, Tim said, I think God would tell you what's in your hand. And so I thought, okay. So we opened the church with what was in our hands, which wasn't much. It wasn't enough money. It wasn't enough people. Uh, but he provided. So, you know, we went and got... Uh, 20-foot pews, some of you guys, those days, we used to have 20-foot pews in here going back the wall. Um, and so we got those for free. We had to rent a truck, though, 200 bucks to get that truck. And that almost wiped us out. I mean, th- I mean really, when we had to make a $200 purchase, it was like the whole group got together and prayed. You know, the whole hand, let's pray. $200, don't know if we can do this. Um, but, you know, we got the pews, and then, you know, we were able to get the sound equipment, and somebody donated our mixer. And it was just really cool to watch how God filled in with some things, but not the people. Didn't have a youth pastor, didn't have a, a kit place to send kids. Uh, you know, I was supposed to have an associate pastor who was going to take some of the load. The first time it was time for him to preach, he quit. So um, it's like, man, God, I don't know what's going on. And I never had the structure in place. I still don't have the structure in place that I want. But I'm learning that it's not about the structure, it's about the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is here, we don't need the structure. And if the Holy Spirit isn't here, the structure doesn't matter. It might be okay to make a successful business, but if you want a spirit-led church, you gotta let the spirit lead. And so I've just kind of gotten used to the fact, this is actually something I've you know, grasped easier than my wife who loves structure. Uh, I operate a little bit better in chaos than she does, so I'm a little bit better with it. Because we see needs. We see needs in the church, we see needs in the community. And we think, man, we should have some way to address that need. And I'm just at the point where, you know what? If God wanted us addressing that need, he would have given us a way of addressing it. He didn't. So let's stay focused on what he's given us, what's in our hand. And we just keep working with what's in our hand. And so if some of you are frustrated with some of the things that aren't here in the church, me too. But I'm learning to be okay with that. I'm learning to say, okay, God, I'll I'll let your spirit determine the direction of the church. And I won't go building a structure that you didn't ask me to. And it's really important to get this right. Because if you start a church or a ministry or even run a family with the wrong premise, you end up with deception. You understand? That's where, that's where deception happens. Not at the facts, it's at the, it's at the premise. I don't have time to build on this, but basically, if you start with the wrong premise and you look at the same facts I look at and I start with a different premise, one of us will come up with a different answer. Same facts. Um, I've, I've done a lot of prayers for a lot of meals since I've become a pastor. Uh, any political 
meal I've given to has always been Republican. I don't know why, but I've always been asked by Republicans to pray. Uh, recently, I was asked by a Democrat. And I want you to know, I pray for Republicans and Democrats. So I said, yeah, sure. I'll come and I'll offer the prayer for the meal. And it was really funny, though, because we got there and we didn't know anybody because we'd been to several of these. Victoria came with me and said, man, we don't know anybody here. This is amazing. It's like, boom. It's just such a small town, but yet a whole different set of people. And before I went, there was a Democratic bigwig who was there who had another meeting to get to, so he preempted the prayer. And he stood up and he spoke first. And he started out the way every political speech I've ever heard, you know, for Pennsylvania started out. You know, look, we got these problems. And I don't think anybody disagrees with these problems. We need better paying jobs for our kids. Yeah, amen. You know, we need to have, make sure that health care is provided for all people that they can get what, the help they need. Yeah, yeah, okay. I believe that. You know, and I can't remember the third one, but the three of them, we like, oh, yeah, yeah, everybody agrees. You know? But then he jumped from there to say, and the problem's all the, the Republican, Republicans there, all the problem. And I've heard this speech before, but it was always the Democrats who were always the problem. You know? It's like we agreed on all the facts, and yet for some reason the solutions were completely different. When you start with a different premise, you end up with a different conclusion. We need to make sure the premise we start with is God's premise, and God's premise is this. I build the church, not you. I build the church. The church will be built by my spirit. And if you're not building it that way, you are laboring in vain. And so we have had to learn to say, okay, Spirit, you show us where you want to be. You will bring the people that you need. You'll bring the building that, you, that we need when you see we need it. And we will be learning to be content until we get there. Okay, number two, um, we have a tendency to promote based on similarity. God promotes based on the heart. And that's, that's a problem with us when we're trying to force people into positions. Because look at the qualifications the disciples came up with. He's got to be like us. He has to have been around from the, from the beginning all the way back to the baptism. And, and, and basically, we like him because he's still with us, right? That's who they're going to pick. That's not who God picked. Because I believe God did pick a 12th apostle, but he couldn't have picked him then because he wasn't even saved yet. This guy was at the time going by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he would famously persecute the church until he becomes saved. I think it's pretty clear that Paul becomes a 12th apostle. Pretty clear. He wasn't there at the time. How could they pick him? And if they did pick him, would they pick him? Here's who I want you to pick, Peter. A Pharisee who right now hates Jesus Christ. Could you go get him and bring him in for the 12th apostle? Would Peter have done that? Not in your life. He was persecuting and killing Christians at the time. But God was picking somebody based on what he saw in him, not based on what we see. When God picks people, it's based on their heart, and we're going to have to get used to that. We're going to have to understand that God will bring his people, and then we might not recognize them when they're here. That's why the Spirit has to lead. We know that, but it's important that a church is made up like that because you can't have just everybody having the same point of view. One of the great things about Spirit Chapel is we have many different uh, ethnic groups in our church. So we get points of view from Peru. We get points of view from Korea. We get points of view from Ukraine. We have people who are actually first generation from those countries. Because one of the things I've struggled to do is pull the Americanism out of my Christianity. Because so much of that gets enmeshed. And I don't want to be an American Christian. I want to be a Christian who's an American. So we got to get that out. And so having different points of view help that. And I believe God's going to challenge us even more with some other points of view. I think we need that. I think it's important. The body's made up of many parts. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. And he goes on for a long time. And I'm not going to have time to, to go through all of it. But it's a big, eloquent uh, speech in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. You can start and read it yourself. But he's basically, there's one body that's made up of many parts. 
Many parts make up the body. And the eye's not more important than the big toe. You think it is until you stumble and fall. <laughs> you know, if your eyes close and your big toe gets stubbed, guess which one right now you're worried about? The big toe. And as so we saying, it's made up of many parts and we're supposed to be made up of many parts. The body of Christ needs to have many parts. And if we always promote the same people and the same looking people who act the same and speak the same and, and do all the things the same, we're always only going to have one point of view. And God says, I'm, I'm a multi-directional God. I'm not, a, I'm not a single direction God. So we're going to have to start understanding that God's going to take us in other ways that we think is necessary. Believe me, they would have never picked Paul. Later, Peter will, will defend him to the brethren, saying, yeah, his writings are hard, but he's right. But, but God picked Paul, and, and he becomes the greatest missionary of the church. So I'm going to skip over 1 Corinthians here, and I'm going to get to my final point, because I know we're, we're, we're getting hot here, because the air conditioning kicked off, and until it kicks back on, we're going to be sweating. My apologies. When we get the new building, it'll have better air conditioning, I promise you. Um, anyway, so, so number three, and this is, I think, really, really, really important for me. Uh, this is my, my favorite point of the Matthias uh, ma- uh, matter, and that's this. If we are sincerely and passionately trying to do God's will, our mistakes won't matter. I, I, think, the apostle, I think the apostles made a mistake. Guess what? didn't matter. The Holy Spirit still fell. They still started the church. Peter still became the rock of the church as Jesus prophesied. And Paul becomes the greatest missionary as God always intended. Nothing changed. They were sincerely seeking the will of God. Nothing changed because they made a mistake. God doesn't expect you to be perfect. Don't wait around necessarily because I'm afraid of making a mistake. That's not a good reason to wait. Because God didn't tell you to move is a good reason to wait. But if God's told you to move and I'm afraid of making a mistake... Don't do that. He's bigger than your mistakes. He's more powerful than your faults. He's God. It's okay. We, we know this. We know this. Uh, I have this guitar over there. It's a red 12-string guitar. I get asked every so often when new people come in for a while. They come for a few weeks. They said, does anybody ever play that guitar? I said, no. <laughs> no one ever plays it. That is what I call an Ebenezer. You know, when God does something in your life, it teaches you something, you're supposed to raise up a stone as an Ebenezer in the Old Testament. That's what they do in Joshua. That's my Ebenezer. That reminds me of a mistake that I made that obviously, honestly could have sunk the church. Really, honestly. We were that poor back then. Uh, that guitar is more expensive than it looks. It's not $1,000, but really a few hundred dollars back then meant so much to us. And what was happening was because I was locked into this idea of what the church had to be, it had to have live music. Well, we didn't have a live music leader. So I thought, well, that'll be me, which was crazy. But I was bringing my guitar here and I was leading music badly. Uh, those of you who were here in those early days, you remember that. Uh, we had a lot of silence during our music in those days, but no one knew what to sing. And um, so, you know, everything is going on me. I was over there running the computer, I was playing guitar, I was trying to do all this stuff. It was nuts. Um, but what was happening is I was bringing my guitar from home and my personal guitar to play. And as Brian could tell you, I'm sometimes careless with my equipment. Uh, and so my poor guitar was getting chipped a little bit. Now, my guitar is a, today is 36 year old guitar and it means the world to me. I couldn't replace it on many levels. Uh, so when I started seeing damage being done to my precious vintage guild, I said, you know what? The church needs to buy their own guitar. I'll play it, but church needs to buy their own guitar. And so I 
talked to the board and they said, well, whatever has to happen, has to happen. And we were not a lot of money in the bank at the time. And so we bought that. And the reason I bought a 12 string is I said, well, I'll be playing rhythm, which is crazy since I have no rhythm, but I'll be playing rhythm guitar. And so, you know, I'll be leading us in rhythm guitar. And so a 12 string is good for rhythm guitar. And I bought this 12 string. I, and shortly after we bought it, we finally get it and get it all set up and everything. And we switched to the music you see today you know, backing tracks and, and videos and things. And then Stas took over shortly after that. So this is absolutely not necessary for anything we do in the church. I think it's been played twice. But I put it there to remind me to, to listen to God and that structure doesn't trump spirit. Because if I really honestly prayed to God, he said, you don't need that. You guys are going about this entirely in the wrong way. You don't need that. That purchase took our bank account down to a level that if the if the electric bill had hit, coupled with the uh, gas bill, um, it could have it could have been the end. We could have maybe not paid it. We were that close to the to to the end, and yet God covered it, even though He knew I didn't. He knew I didn't need it because I was trying to do the right thing. I just made a mistake. I just made a mistake. I've made more than that <laughs> since then. Part of the reason we put the structure in place where I don't don't have complete access to, to the funds anymore <laughs> for my vision. Uh, but, you know, the, the point is, though, that, that I made a mistake. It didn't stop Spirit Chapel from happening. I've made other mistakes that hasn't stopped Spirit Chapel from happening. And that's encouraging to me that God's bigger than my mistakes. And so all you can do when you make a mistake, this is what I've learned, uh, what you don't do is hide it, what you don't do is cover it up, what you don't do is pretend it isn't there. You repent of your mistake and you move on. And God honors that. If you make a mistake, admit it. Made a mistake. You repent, you move on. And God says, I can work with that. Um, we see in Isaiah 55, one of my very favorite scriptures, he says, look, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed. So it basically, he said, I send rain and snow for a purpose, to grow fruit. And doesn't come back to me until it has achieved its purpose is what he's saying here. He says, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. I like the old King James here. It will not return to me void. Some of you may know that one. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. He said, I speak and my words will bring truth and they will bring fulfillment of what I said they'll bring. If he says spirit chapel shall flourish, then we will flourish. His word does not return to him empty. His word matters, not ours. Our mistake doesn't matter. What matters is his word. And here's something else that I think we can take some kind of uh, comfort from. The Bible is full of heroes that we know as biblical heroes, right? They're from all walks of life. He, he uses kings, which you'd expect. He uses warriors, as you'd expect but he also uses a shepherd boy. He used a virgin, which was cool, but he also used a prostitute. He used a beauty queen, and he used lepers. It was amazing how he could use anybody and do great things. And if you stacked them all up and you look, what's the one thing that they all have in common? I can only find one. There is one thing that every hero of the Bible has. They were faithful. They didn't quit. They just kept on coming. It's like God says, I can work with that. If you can be honest with me, if you can honestly seek me, and you can try to hear my word and keep coming and don't quit, 
I can do great things with that. The wonderful thing is that when he speaks his word over us, it doesn't return to him until it accomplishes its purpose. Dear Lord, speak over this congregation that your word will be done in our lives. Would you all please pray with me?